Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. We are in for a fun ride today, folks. My guest is without a doubt, a no excuses guy. His start was in all things advertising. For 17 years, he worked at global powerhouses, the likes of Bates, J. Walter Thompson, what was then Foot Cone and Belding, now FCB. He developed his specialty in healthcare marketing and communications and rose to executive vice president of FCB's consumer healthcare practice, serving big corporate pharmaceutical clients. Then in 2008, he turned the tables to follow the beat of his own drum and founded his own company, which we'll learn about. He's been named one of the top 100 most influential people in the life sciences category by Pharma Voice magazine, and in January 2016, was inducted into the Direct-to-Consumer Perspectives Hall of Fame for significant contributions to the pharma industry. Meet my friend and fellow tennis enthusiast, the founder and CEO of Strike Force Communications, Mike Rutstein. Mike, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Thanks so much, Molly. I'm excited to be here. Um, that's quite an introduction and much, much appreciated. Well, I appreciate all you've done and your willingness to use your voice. And in addition to your awesome tenacity on the court, I uh, am so impressed with how you parlayed your corporate experience, took a chance to create your company and just never looked back. Before we go there, because I know there's a lot of interesting work stories, I am keen for listeners just to get to know you personally. So you know, please take us back to your youth, you know, the twists and turns along the way. Sure. You know, there actually were quite a, quite a few twists and turns that I think helped shape my career and who I am today. Um, in, in many ways, my story, you know, at the outset is, is a prototypical story. Um, a kid who grew up in, you know, in the suburbs and in a beautiful town in Western Massachusetts, Longmeadow, Massachusetts, uh, two sisters um, lived on a, in a quiet tree-lined street, cat, dog, and you know all the garden variety things that uh, that come with that, but in other ways, uh, my story is a bit uncharacteristic. You know, at a very young age, my parents were divorced. Uh, I was five. My younger sister was three. Uh, my older sister was seven. And um, you know, as as scary as that was at the time, you know, feeling a bit lost. I think I gained a lot from that experience because I was living at that time, you know, the three of us with, with my two sisters, with my mom, and my mom was an extremely smart, but very, very complicated person. Uh, unfortunately, she passed away at a relatively young age. But at the time, um, you know, in that household, there was a lot of uncertainty and you didn't really know what you were going to get when you walked in the door with my mother, you know, one day it was a lot of praise, another day it was a lot of criticism. And so um, from a very early age, I learned how to scenario plan because you have to be prepared when you don't know what you're going to be confronted with. And so 
I might have five, six, seven different scenarios in my mind of how I might respond or act in a certain way uh, when my mother came home. And that, strangely enough, became, um, you know, an instrumental part of my uh, my DNA, my way of operating. And I think it's carried with me throughout my entire career. And that includes going to meetings. Uh, when I'm confronted in, in challenging client situations, I try to be way out in front of that storyline before it even happens so that, you know, I'm prepared. Uh, I know how to pivot and, uh, and I can move from there. So um, it wasn't a great experience, but I, I think there were a lot of really positive things, uh, strangely enough, that came from that. Wow, that's a lot. Um, that's a lot for a five-year-old. And to be able to reflect on it and see how it's really helped you. Um, well, as you go through, uh, continue. But I am curious how that may have affected your own, your own um, thoughts on relationships and on having kids. Yeah, I, well, it's a that's a, a deeper conversation for sure. But um, but you know, I will tell you, you know, in addition to that preparedness, you know, from you know navigating that dynamic, uh, I will also say that you know another interesting thing happens. It's sort of a, a psychodynamic situation where you you go into your mind and you learn that your imagination is your internal operating system. Um, and so from an early age, I was very intrigued with commercials. Um, and I think you may have had this experience. I think all kids do, whether it's for a cereal brand or for, for toys, you know, we see these incredible commercials and, you know, that's what's inspirational to want to, you know, obtain these things. And when we get them, we try to go out in the backyard or, you know, in the case of, um, you know, it could be anything, as I said, it could be a cereal brand, it could be a toy. Um, and we try to recreate that experience that we've, that we've seen on TV. And we often find that's very frustrating because um, those storylines are designed to be inspirational, aspirational, far-reaching. And so, you know, as somebody growing up in that environment, I learned how to use my imagination, you know, as um, a mechanism, I think sometimes for escape. And that was something that, you know, I was fascinated with uh, to kind of go into that world and to be able to go out into the backyard and try to recreate that experience, you know, often, often frustrated with the result because, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, a big track uh, that I, you know, my, my mother bought for me, you know, sometime in the early 80s, I could never quite make it do uh, what it did on TV, but I never stopped reaching and trying to accomplish that. And so um, I, I thought that was fascinating. And, you know, it was very early stage in understanding uh, consumer behavior and, and what triggers people and moves them, moves them into action. Well, and then with two sisters, I'm, I'm just wondering how, you know, with the, the parent situation that really bring you folks together and did you, uh, you know, kind of, were you a little tribe or were you off on your own because you have the boy? <laughs> well, you know, as the middle child, I, I was the peacemaker um, <laughs> in the family. And, you know, I'll tell you, it's, it may sound interesting, but I can often tell whether, you know, whether it be a man or a woman, if they've grown up with uh, sisters or brothers. And, you know, I think I benefited a lot from growing up with sisters. I think it allowed me to kind of, you know, tap into some more emotional dimensions. 
um, to be able to be very true to my feelings. And um, I think all of that positively impacted my career for sure, because communications has a lot of emotional layers to it. You know, it's all about how do we, how do we resonate um, and how do we move people into action and people are moved, uh, moved by emotion. And so, you know, I think I really benefited from having two sisters and being able to, uh, to tap, tap into that dimension. I, you know, I would, I would like to add that, you know, as difficult as it could be, you know, sometimes in that household, you know, I also had the North star of my, my father and my father has been and continues to be even at uh, 81 years old today, my, my greatest inspiration. He at a very, very young age, um, in his early thirties was running multinational companies. And, um, you know, when I look back today at my father and my mother, it's amazing that they lasted even 10 years because they were just diametrically opposed in every way. But my father was my greatest supporter. And he continued, you know, to, to motivate me today. And I don't think people can truly understand how important, you know, the, the greatest meeting room in the world is the dinner is, you know, around the dinner table. Mm-hmm. Because when I would sit with, with my father and I would watch my father talking to my stepmother or even on a phone call, as a young person, you are through the process of osmosis internalizing everything that is said. And you don't even realize it until it's 10 or 15, 20 years later. And you're faced with many of those same situations that you saw your parents faced with and how you move and how you navigate. All of that is, is taken in at a, early, a very, very early age. And I can't tell you how much I benefited from that. You know, it's so funny you mentioned that we had dinner, you know, my dad carpooled to work. He was a researcher, physicist, engineer, and came home. And at 5.30, he walked in the door at 5.35 every day. We mm. sat around the dinner table. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, you know, as I said, I don't, I don't even think we, we understand at the time how important that is, but um, I, I think it's it's fundamental, and of course we are you know products of our environment and experience, and uh, and that was uh, a great great benefit to me. But um, you know, as as the rake's progress goes, um, I went on. I was fortunate enough to go to a, a really you know terrific uh, private school uh, in in the area uh, where I lived. And I think that, you know, was sort of the second stop as an inflection point in my life. Um, I was very active, uh, you know, in, in private school, uh, particularly around sports. Sports um, is a very big, big deal for me because, you know, obviously you're dealing with people of different talents and temperaments and convictions, but somehow you have to find the red thread as a team and, and how to work together uh, to achieve a desired outcome. And so um, sports became a, a very important guiding light for me. Um, you know, I was a big water polo player at one point. I was a, wow. wrestler, a wrestler. I, you know, uh, played lacrosse. I went on to play lacrosse in college for a year um, at a very small school in, in Rhode Island, uh, Roger Williams, before I transferred later to Syracuse. But, you know, sports has been another, um, you know, an important learning lab for me and I think an important vehicle to 
you know, to work through things and to continue to strive and to really to learn how to perform, you know, within myself and, and with others. Yeah, I'm curious about the sports and because um, I am a, this is very sporty and it's something I really resonate with. And I'm curious in work for and it can get kind of clicky for the people who sort of resonate and like like sports analogies. And I could imagine all the people kind of rolling their eyes like, oh, my God, another football or whatever. And, um, you know, in your career, did you find that um, for the folks who maybe were just that didn't it didn't wasn't there? Um, their experience, there was another way you connected with them or did they see it? You know, I'm just, that just kind of came to my mind. Whether somebody was athletic or not. Yeah. Whether they kind of dealt with the sports. Cause I, you know, I think about that when I was at Cisco, I remember looking at the sales guys and they were all like kind of like college lacrosse types and you could fit in if you were that, but I could also see how for folks who didn't, it was something that they didn't feel so included. And I just was curious if you had any experience of folks who maybe were not, who really weren't resonating with the sports analogies or the sports world and how you found you connected with them. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's interesting because as much as I love sports and you know all the teams I've played on, the thing I despise the most is the locker room <laughs> um, because you, know, you walk into a locker room and you, you hear a lot of you know, the macho, chat that's going on and everybody's, um, you know, trying to flex in, in their own way. And, you know, and you see, there's a lot of testosterone floating around and I've never been about that. You know, I've always been around, you know, the performance aspect of it, the team bonding aspect. And I have a lot of friends that uh, were not athletic at all. And so, you know, that was just a vehicle for me. Um, but, you know, I, dealt with a lot of creative types, um, a lot of very uncoordinated types. And, um, you know, I don't in any way, um, you know, I'm not partial, you know, just to people who play sports, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in people in general, and I'm, I'm fascinated by people. So um, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's how I would. Yeah, you have a really great, I don't know, you have a very, um, what's the word, disarming way about you, right? I mean, you're, you know, you're like, not a short person, you're, you're kind of, you could fill a room, but at the same time, there's something about you that is, uh, is very embracing. So now were you an academic kid? Like, what were you like in school? Like, what would people say about you? Well, you know, I'm not sure I should be uh, saying this on, <laughs> I was a terrible student. Um, and the truth of the matter is, and, and I'll say this once, I'll never say it again. I used to leave my books in the woods um, in high school because I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to carry them home. Um, and I could just pick them up the next day. And um, of course, my parents were always wondering where my books were. And that went on for a period of time. But I, the classroom uh, to me was such a structured environment and it was not a place I excelled. And I will tell you, I'll come on to this. Uh, I strangely enough became a great student later on, but in my early years, um, it, it just wasn't for me. And I'll tell you why. Um, you know, I was classified very early as having a learning disability. Um, and it was really around comprehension. And I think I was so overstimulated all the time that I could never let my mind rest enough to internalize um, information. And so I made sense out of information in, in my own way. Um, and 
you know, I think it's a terrible classification that's still used today. The term learning disabled, you know, you're not able to learn, which is, you know, hardly the truth. I think people learn in different ways. And, um, and I wish they would, frankly, I wish they would change that classification. And so for that reason alone, I, I pushed away, you know, from academics. Um, but I had an interesting thing happen to me when I was uh, a junior in high school. Um, I met a teacher and this teacher saw something in me and, you know, we were, we were creating short stories and, um, I got into this phase of creative writing and he was really moved by my stories. And he said to me one day, he said, you have this amazing way with words and how you bring stories to life. And so, you know, and I, I never really thought about it, but the truth is, and I've, and I've been fortunate enough that for some strange reason, like words drop like gumdrops in, in my mind and I can organize them like a puzzle in ways that make a tremendous amount of sense, at least to me and, you know, and hopefully others. And um, that gave me a huge boost of confidence. I was able to take that imagination uh, that I was leaning on for so long when I was, you know, very young person, you know, my love of commercials and fantasy and, and, um, and now bring that together with the ability to shape stories and, and communications. And it really all started to tie together. So from the time I was, you know, a, a, probably a junior in high school, I sort of knew what I wanted to do. And, it all galvanized in the form of communications and advertising. And so I got on my horse and I had straight A's as a, a senior in high school. Unfortunately, I was three years short um, of good grades and I went off to a smaller school to play lacrosse and, and frankly work on the academics. And I had a great, great freshman year. And as a result, I was able to transfer to Syracuse to the Newhouse School of Communications, which is, you know, considered, you know, one of the, the top communications uh, programs. And that stepping stone really, you know, changed my life. And it changed uh, the belief I had in myself and, and what I could do. And so I went to Syracuse and I, you know, went all in on the communications uh, aspect of it and uh, was really lucky because at Syracuse, um, you know, they're able to draw from real New York talent. And so every week you have people flying in from different ad agencies to act as, you know, adjunct professors and to teach you campaigns courses and what a real life pitch looks like. And so you come out of that school uh, battled and, and ready for the real world. And so that, um, you know, hopefully will give, uh, you know, the audience a sense of, you know, going from, you know, kind of a ground zero academic background into sort of a thriving student once I was able to tap into my passion and, and found, you know, confidence in, in a way with words. Oh, I love it. And so just on this, this thing is children and the ad. So Walt Disney, there was a Walt Disney show on Sunday nights and the beginning was a very glamorous way of showing the castle lit up. And I would run into the room to watch the five minute opener 
because I was just, I couldn't, and I, it was every single week. And then I would laugh because I could care less about the show. But to your, <laughs> to your point, you know, I was, I was like watching the, I mean, it's just that, I don't know if you remember, it was a graphic and it was just that beautiful castle lit up in the night. And I was just like completely sold on that whole thing. Um, I am so proud of you for just turning it around because, you know, it's not so often that um, the young people f- actually find it. You know what I'm saying? In college, there's a lot of good things we learn and, you know, we're ready to parlay it. But it sounds like you really had this true north and credit to this teacher who, you know, was so amazing. And just a, a word out to listeners, you know, you never know what what you might say to someone that literally can alter the trajectory of their life. And, you know, to be supportive and to care enough to say something and to give you that boost of confidence, you know, was total game changer for you. Absolutely. And, um, and uh, back to, to your story, I absolutely remember the castle being lit up and, you know, I think people that um, can hold on to, you know, in the spirit of the, the magic kingdom can hold on to that magic, even into, adulthood, I think that can be a real, you know, a differentiator. Um, and so it's something we have to work at, right? Because as, as we get older, we, we lose a little bit of that mystery. We know a little bit too much. Um, we know that uh, Santa Claus is not coming down the chimney and there's not really a, a princess in, in, the, in the magic kingdom, but the more we can kind of stay with the story in our own minds and keep it alive, I think, uh, it sort of allows our, you know, creative juices to, to thrive. Yeah. Yeah. And one more thing on this learning disability, and I have had a number of guests from the seventies to teenagers talk about this learning disability. And we, we, one of the words that came out was just neurodivergent as people learn differently and just how it can be really hard if people feel labeled and to do our best to, to try not to do that. Cause it can have can have lasting effects obviously did not for you so when you're at the new house since it is such a powerhouse there where how did the job thing happen you know were they coming to you were you going to them and did you know exactly what you wanted to do once you graduated i did and uh one of the challenges i had is i graduated you know in the height of a of a pretty steep recession and it was really difficult to get a job um i knew i wanted to work at a big New York agency. And, um, you know, I'd come to New York and I'd interviewed the challenge there was that back in the day, you had to know how to type. And I think it was 60 or 90 words a minute. And I was not a typist, uh, per se. So it was really hard to, to break in. Everybody started as a secretary. And so, you know, I stumbled around for a bit. I went back home to live with my dad in Boston. I did a little stint at Fidelity Investments um, as a brokerage assistant, which kind of took me off my path for a bit. And about a year, maybe nine months later, I decided, you know, the big city was my uh, calling. And so I made my way to New York on a bus. Uh, true story. I read Bonfire of the Vanities. I was so moved, moved by the book. And I, I you know, stormed off the bus when I got there and was ready to kind of take on New York. And I pounded the pavement and I had a really hard time finding a job because I couldn't type. And I got probably the next or in some ways biggest break of my life because I, um, I walked into a temp agency and I said, listen, I'll do anything. I'll lick envelopes. I'll um, you know, fetch coffee, whatever it takes to get started. And I got a call back. Uh, there was a, a healthcare advertising agency 
and I, I didn't even know agencies focused on healthcare at the time. And they, they needed a temp worker. And I made my way over there uh, really as an administrative assistant um, under the guise that I could type. So um, I assured my boss at the time that I could type and I was there for about two weeks and suddenly he started to bring, you know, sheaves of paper out to this secretarial desk, you know, that I was sitting in and I met these two women who were, you know, amazing secretaries at the time. And we worked out a little bit, a deal that I would buy them lunch if they would type up my stuff. And this went on for about two months and one day he walked out and he used to call me Babe. And uh, he was from New Jersey. He said, Babe, can you come in here for a minute? I want to I talk to you. And so I walked into his office and he said, let's just get one thing out of the way. You can't type. I know what's going on. You've been handing off the work to the, to the two girls uh, next to you. Um, and frankly, I should tell you to, to walk out today, but there's something about you. And I don't know what it is, but I want to teach you. And I'm going to take you on as my, as my mentee. And I think we found each other at a really interesting point. I needed him and he needed me. Um, he'd been around for a long time. I think at the time he was in a challenge, uh, challenging marriage. And we stayed together and we worked every day and every night. And he brought me into meeting rooms and taught me how to play the political game um, and how to analyze data. Um, he gave me projects that were, you know, three, four levels beyond me to tackle. And, um, and I may have mentioned this to you when we played tennis, but we had a moment where we were heading over to Unilever, which was one of our big clients at the time. And we were presenting, you know, the 19, what was it, 93, you know, communications plan for, uh, Lever 2000 and, and Dove, the soap brand. And we had about 50 to 75 acetate slides at the time that he was going to present. And we're standing in the lobby of Unilever and he turns and he hands me the slides. And at this time I'm 20, like 23 years old. And he said, you're presenting today. And I said, I'm presenting. And he said, why? You don't think you can do it? And so I was shaking in my shoes and we went upstairs and we got in a boardroom and there's all the senior executives from Unilever and he said let's go and so I was trembling I was shaking I got through three four slides I thought I was going to have a panic attack and run out of the room and he took his hand and he went into a kind of a rotation motion and said let's let's move let's go and by the end of that presentation I was spinning pointing at the screen I was you know, whipping the slides off and putting the next one on. And, you know, that was another huge confidence booster for me. And I will tell you from that day on, I never looked back because when I walked out of that room, I felt like I could run through a brick wall. So um, he was my mentor. And uh, it's funny, I even get a little choked up talking about it today. He he passed away a few years after that, um, sadly from a heart attack. But um, you know, he gave me that that confidence to uh, to to really just plow ahead. Oh, I am so smiley, and I'm so proud of you. And I want folks who are listening for the young people I've been mentoring a bunch who are you know really in the job throws. I mean, you just modeled. You got to get out there and you'll do whatever, and you make it happen. 
And for the folks who are ancient like me, I remember foils, these slides, you had special markers, you could write the slides. And it was, you know, for people who've not experienced what it's like to assemble and do a presentation that way, it would be, that's, that's gotta be on YouTube somewhere as a video, it's hilarious. I mean, I, no, I really finally remember courses on how did you do your foils and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. Um, okay, so so this corporate life, you know, so just talk to us about, you know, your trajectory in there. And, you know, I, I can imagine, you know, there's, they're big companies. So there's some politics and stuff like that. And, you know, how did you navigate all that? Yeah, I think, you know, I'll start off by saying there's nothing like getting, uh, you know, training from a big company. Um, I learned so much in, in big companies, uh, you know, whether or not you've gone back to school, you get an MBA there. And that's that's how it works. You learn structure, you learn process, you learn how to you know operate again in a team-based environment. Um, you've got the best of the best around you. There's a lot of horsepower, you're working with big clients. And so um, I, you know, for many, many years thrived in, in big companies and I fought for the brand for every company I worked for, you know, when we worked at Bates and Bates was one of the real stalwarts in its day, you know, that we were, this was the Bates team. And, you know, you lived and died together because you spent so much time together and we cared and believed so much about that company. Uh, sadly, I think that level of loyalty is, is not there today, but uh, it certainly was, you know, back in the day. And we stayed for years. You know, I was with Bates, uh, which later rolled into JWT, J. Walter Thompson, uh, for 10 years. Uh, worked with the same team for 10 years. I mean, it's, it's unheard of today, but we loved the brand and we loved each other. Um, you know, the, as, as positive as, as that was, um, an interesting thing happens as you move up in your career, you move from the advertising business to the business of advertising. And, you know, a slight twist on words, very distinct things. Um, you start to get away from the work a little bit and you get into managing P&Ls. And when you get into the world of managing a P&L, you're getting into the sauce of politics because it's all about the numbers, it's all about margin. And I think um, that's probably, you know, where I ran into some headwinds because I had very strong convictions about the work and what I thought it took to get, get work done and do it well. Um, often big companies, you know, are looking for margin in any way. And so they often will, you know, get into a dynamic where they're, you know, putting pieces in place that are going to compromise the work product. And I didn't want to do that. And so, you know, I found myself in some, you know, political firefights over, you know, and I stood, you know, true to what I believed in. Um, we were being paid by clients and paid to do great work, not paid to, deliver expected work or average work. Um, and sometimes, you know, you got to pay to play if you're, if you're really going to deliver. And so, you know, I was not um, as good, frankly, in the political aspect of it because, um, you know, somebody handed me a little sticky note early in my career and I'm going to encourage everybody to take the same post-it note and put it above their desk. And it was three simple words, play the game. And I had a boss who said, Mike, if you follow these three words, you'll never have an issue in your career. 
Um, the problem was I didn't want to play the game all the time. I wanted to do what I thought was right. And if you're going to operate in a big company, you better learn how to play the game. And so you often, and I'm sure Molly, you've seen it <laughs> in corporate life, you know, the guy who finds the, um, you know, the middle ground and he doesn't take a position, you know, too far to the left or too far to the right. He fits into a nice little box. That's the person that puts the key in the door when the company closes. The person that's very outspoken and has a point of view while it's encouraged often by, you know, the senior people, those people often find themselves standing out on a limb by themselves. And, you know, in that way, that, really was kind of the end of my big corporate life was, you know, taking a strong position on what I believed was right for the company. And it was not in keeping with what some of the other leaders felt. And so it was sort of, I became part of a restructuring, uh, so to speak. And it was very clear to me, the writing was on the wall and my days were numbered. And that really was the inspiration for, for starting Strikeforce. See, I love this because, and people are wired differently and I don't want to make one better or worse or right or wrong, but I, I appreciate the awareness and the intentionality that you exhibited because for you, it's just not an option, right? I can't sit here and like do what I consider to be mediocre and be me and be happy. And I, you know, I think for folks listening, you can kind of nod your head and you could be mad about the way it is. Hey, that's the reality. And they run that show and that's how that show works. Um, but I think the thing for people like you who are so enterprising, what it does create is great opportunity. So share with us what you saw. And then, you know, I, I'm just wondering how it was for you emotionally. Were you just like, you know, heck bent, like I'm going to make this happen. Or how did you figure out how exactly you wanted to play in this space? Yeah, I think uh, I think you said it, you said it well, there is no, by the way, to, to be fair here, there are a lot of people that stay in companies for their entire careers and, and they thrive in those companies. And I hold nothing against those people. We need those people for sure. Um, when you look at, you know, some of the outliers out there that, you know, the, the Bransons, the Steve Jobs, uh, in, in our world, Donnie Deutsch, you know, these are people that have strong beliefs and convictions and they don't, they don't live well in neat little boxes. That's, that's not how they're made. So um, when, I made the decision to, to start Strikeforce. Um, I took what I perceived to be an Achilles heel of these bigger agencies. And that was what I talked about, which was, you know, let's find ways to squeeze margin. Let's try to load up staffing plans with unnecessary resources. Um, and we'd also often talk in these bigger companies about breaking down silos and, you know, I took those ingredients and I thought a lot about that. And I overlaid that with what I was hearing from a lot of our clients, which are, why are all these people in the room? You know, there's only three people here that are making a contribution. And why am I paying for everybody? And why am I paying for them every day when you guys are only doing work in select moments? And I used to have to defend against that as, uh, as the person, you know, running the, uh, running the division. And so I took that, I took those two layers and I said, you know what, I think there's something here that's, 
really about serving up a totally different agency service model. And it's not about taking down silos. It's about knocking the walls down. And it's about having open reach into the marketplace, not being confined by the four walls of the agency. There's so many interesting people out there, small, you know, um, you know, incubators doing really interesting things. So why don't we build a big network of people from different disciplines and create a hub and spoke model? So we have, you know, 25 full-time people sitting in the center, but that is augmented by all of these spokes out there, whether they're people or partners to our company. And that way we can bring really innovative and unique solutions to clients. And you're not going to get the same, you know, bread and butter every single week because we're going to, you know, fuse interesting people and partners together to do different things. And so it just crystallized in my mind. And um, you're seeing more and more of that today. And strangely enough, the pandemic actually has sort of uh, legitimized this whole concept because suddenly everybody's working from home and they're thinking, why can't we reach out into the world now when we don't have to sit in an office, be confined by four walls? There's so many interesting people out there. They're doing different things. How do we bring them together? And so that was kind of the concept, but it happened 14 years ago, as opposed to, I think, what is now being seen as almost a, a revolution in, in the industry today. I love that you are so ahead of the game and it, it is sort of striking that it took this long to figure it out. You know, I have someone who kind of had a lot of virtual working over the last decade. So when, when people were talking about it, I'm like, I don't know, I've been doing this for a long time. But I think um, to, to connect the dots, your strong relational skills as a child moving on are essential if you're going to be able to work, you know, kind of across borders and, um, you know, it, it, it takes a level of, I would say, relationship and communication competency that you don't necessarily have to have if everyone kind of sits under your nose in a room. And I know that seems kind of obvious to you, but I think a lot of folks who are used to being the leader because I'm here, I am, I'm in the room, I'm clearly at the biggest desk in the biggest office or what have you, that kind of goes away. And um, so I think that ability just plays into your sweet spot, I think, of, of really knowing it and, um, working great with people. So, you know, as an entrepreneur, do you think of yourself as an entrepreneur? Do you think, what do you think of yourself as? Uh, it's a great question. <laughs> um, today I do. Um, I don't know if I set out that way. Um, I think I saw an opportunity and I just seized it, um, not even really knowing where, where it was all going. And uh, now that, you know, we've got, as I said, 14 years behind us, I think it took a lot of entrepreneurial skills to to navigate, to get to where we are today. Um, you know, it's uh, it's a crazy thing because, you know, you hear the term entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. and, you know, there's a, there's a <laughs> big difference. When you're an entrepreneur, you've got to eat a lot of humble pie because when you get started, you are everything. You're the bottle washer, the cook, the cleaner, the idea guy, and, um, in addition to that, you've got a night job of trying to figure out things that you never had to tackle in big companies. You know, you've got to drop contracts. You have to work with lawyers. You have to, you know, get uh, finance people involved and you have to set up systems and uh, protocols and, and you've got to fit within certain uh, 
guidelines that each of your clients is, is looking for. And that can be everything from, you know, how you store your files to, you know, following certain rules and regulations, you know, within a, in a corporate setting. And I didn't really think about any of that when we got started and it just comes at you like a fire hose. Um, but, um, and I'm going to, you know, tell you the truth. It's uh, it, it was, it was tough, you know, getting going. Um, you know, I didn't know at the time what I didn't know. Uh, I so believed in this idea. Uh, we started with a tiny little project, uh, shooting a video um, for a company out on the West Coast. And that video turned into a multi-million dollar client. And then that relationship turned into a different relationship and uh, so on and so forth. And today we've worked with, I think, 31 clients uh, since, you know, we opened uh, our virtual door. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a journey. And, and every day is in a way starting over because you are faced with new challenges every day when you're running your own company um, and you're up against headwinds. I mean, you're competing with, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world for the biggest clients in the world. And you've got to differentiate yourself every single day to stay relevant and, and be successful. And so uh, I still get those 5 a.m. moments, you know, when I'm you know, lying in bed and, you know, wondering about an idea or about an initiative that we're taking on. And, you know, how is it going to separate for our clients and uh, how is it going to separate, frankly, from our competition? Because it's you know, one phone call away from not having that business and one phone call away from having a, a thriving company, you know, stall out. So. Gosh, I appreciate your, your humble pie and just really being upfront about it with your own self. So I imagine there's these moments of self-doubt. Did you ever think you were going to quit? Like who was your rock when you were like, I cannot believe that I'm doing this and people are depending on me. I'm so glad you, you asked that question because I, it would be remiss if we had this chat without mentioning my business partner. Um, her name is uh, Patricia Prugno and she goes by Pat and Pat and I, you know, found each other at, um, at FCB, Falcone Belding, uh, right before I started Strikeforce. And um, we are as yin and yang as they come. You know, I'm a little bit, you know, on the edge and uh, about to step over um, and always thinking. And Pat is the practical rock, you know, in the dynamic who kind of reins me back in. And then I pull her out when I think she gets a little too tight in the thinking and we really work in a beautiful way together. And I am the luckiest person in the world to have a business partner like that. And there's nobody that I would trust more than, than Pat as, as a partner. She's just such a, a fine human being. Uh, I love it. I love it. I love it. I will look forward to meeting her. Um, so listen, we're, I'm looking at time. Let's jump to the say it skillfully part of the show. And, uh, Maybe something you and Pat have talked about current or past, you know, tough talk um, that we can unpack. In terms of, tell me a little bit more in terms of- Well, what, you know, we had talked earlier. I'm thinking one of the things that you had said is, um, 
you and Pat have talked about the politics are so are just so front and center and that there's so much fear, right? And how do people, people want to speak up at work, but that when it's so much fear, people take the safe route and how do, how do we help, you know, people overcome fear and get to the point where, you know, that everyone shouldn't have to leave and start their own company. (laughs) We would hope. Right. So um, I think that was maybe the, uh, how do we we, confront it, you know? So um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I am wondering in, in your career, it sounds like most of the time you were forthright, but do you remember lots of times where you just kind of like, ah, I'm going to lay low. It's not, not worth picking a battle. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've learned more and I, that's something I still work on, on every single day. It's, you know, how do you, you know, rein your passion in, uh, you can have strong convictions and beliefs, but also recognize that, you know, you have to take the long view sometimes on things. And when you own your own business, you become more sensitive to that because, you know, again, you're, you're one misstep away from not working with that client anymore. And, you know, your clients um, are your company, you know? And so um, I will say, you know, you, you, you and I talked a bit about this um, early on, and I think I use the analogy, you know, is fear used to be the tail and, you know, confidence was the dog. And, and I think out there today, it's quite the other way around, sadly, which is, you know, fear is the dog, um, not the tail. And I think collectively, um, it, it, we've got to find ways to support each other and, and work around that and, and recognize that whether we're in tall, small little entrepreneurial companies or a part of big multinational organizations, you know, if we don't work together um, and help, you know, stand behind each other in some of these convictions and beliefs, you know, we're ultimately all alone. And that's what, that's what makes us vulnerable. And so I've got some great people wrapped around me um, to, you know, help stand behind those beliefs and stretch that accountability across. And, and I encourage everybody in large organizations to do the same. I think when we're all operating independently, we're ultimately, while well, we're looking for that gold star, we're exposing ourselves. And I think fear is so pervasive today that if we don't support each other, then we are destined to live in a world of, you know, mediocre thinking and mediocre work product. And I see more and more of that every single day. You know, people have gotten so political, so afraid that you just see the quality. I think it's across industries and uh, it's just, it's slipping. So how do we together? Yeah. It makes me so sad. So this is what I would say, folks. Fear, you know, you can judge it. I would encourage folks to be neutral about it if it's there. One is, is it real? Is it perceived? And so if you really work in a place where if you say something that you think is supporting the whole, you're saying it from a good place and they're going to fire you and there's real fear, then that's real fear. And the question isn't like, how do you speak up? The question is, why are you there? Okay. So, and I, and I do want to help differentiate that for people. I would say that certainly all the leaders I work with, they want to know the truth. They want to hear it. They may not like it. That's okay. So that notion of being skillful saying, Hey, I'm, I'm sensing that. There, there may be some fear in the room and, you know, I just want to put that out there. So just working with that and saying, is that true? And is that something that 
leaders have to own sometimes, you know, I know leaders want to hear it, but if you, if someone says something tough and then the next thing you say is, why do you think that who said that, you know, that's not creating safety folks. Okay. So the leaders have to be aware. You may be very passionate, right? So you may say, Hey, I want to come across as I'm very passionate. Don't interpret this as my way or the highway. Right. So don't leave it up for discussion for people to interpret. But I think acknowledging that's going on. And then what is it that, what do people need? I need to know from our leader that you want to hear. So leaders tell them that you want to hear. I mean, I know that you want to hear, but they got to know it. And then they have to see it in your actions. So I just would say working with that can be a really constructive um, growing opportunity for teams, not something to kind of put in the corner and talk about, you know, assigned. Um, okay, so we're going to go on, but I want to, for folks who want to know more about what, what, what you do, Mike, where do you have a website that you could refer them to? Absolutely. Um, you can uh, log on to, you know, find us at strikeforcenyc.com and you can certainly link into me on LinkedIn, uh, Michael Rutstein. Um, I think it's Michael Rutstein. <laughs> I don't know if it's Michael or Mike on LinkedIn. I have to look at it. But. I will. Well, you're connected to me. I'll share that uh, when I post as well. So um, for folks to learn more, I mean, it's, I have to say it was one of the more beautiful sites I've ever seen, just not to stroke your ego, but it was really cool. Um, and then I will share that I have a new site up, say it's skillfully.com with resources to help folks as well as the past podcasts. And you can check out my mini course and stay tuned because I'm going to be creating a skill building program. Um, so I'd like to wrap on some personal growth um, questions for you, Mike, if it's okay. So, you know, in your, and it's still going strong, but to date, what's the toughest feedback you've received? Well, I think, you know, uh, early on, a lot of people doubted the concept. And so I was told by a lot of my friends, um, you know, a lot of uh you know, colleagues and clients that this was a non-starter. And, you know, that was, was killing me because, you know, we were making our way, making it slowly, but, you know, to have, to have a number of people step in and say, there's no way that this concept will work. Um, you know, it was a killer and I had to be extremely resilient and stay true to the, to the vision. I love it. How about the best advice you've ever gotten? Um, the best advice is knowing the difference between hearing something and listening. And there really is a difference. You know, every day, the way we communicate, you hear certain things. But if you're really listening, what is said is often different than what is felt. And I think the ability to dial into what's really, you know, to use this, you know, say it skillfully, what's really being said. Yeah. And I think the difference between people who are really successful and those who aren't are the people that really know how to listen and can interpret what's being said. Nice. Nice. So, and I know you're still, you know, I'm going to call it mid-career proudest moment so far. Um, you know, we were lucky enough to be involved um, in launching the first cure for hepatitis C. Um, and we went on to launch five different products for Gilead Sciences. Very, you know, <laughs> it's not often that you get to work on something in the world of health where you're actually curing a disease that's killing people. And until we launched Savaldi, 
and later Harvoni, you know, hep C was slowly deteriorating people's livers. It was a number one cause of liver, you know, of liver failure and, and a leading cause of death. And we stopped it, you know, with our partner Gilead Sciences with a single pill. And, you know, you don't get many bites at the apple to do something like that. That's so awesome. That's a huge congratulations. Um, okay, just uh, an area of growth that you're working on. Yeah, this is a, a lifetime <laughs> of, of uh, growth, and that's learning. You know, learning to let go. You know, sometimes my passion is so intense. You know, about something that I feel so strongly about, and for any number of reasons, you just aren't going to get alignment or somebody takes a left turn when you think they're going to take a right turn. And it's, uh, it's a little bit of a family trait we have here, but uh, <laughs> we're not very good at letting go of things. And we want to just keep circling back. And my business partner will, you know, listen about six or seven times on repeat and then she'll turn to me and say, let it go. Move on. <laughs> so I got it. Hard. It's hard. I got it. I got it. Um, okay. Last question. What was it like for you to share your journey today? You know, I, it was incredible. I have to tell you, interestingly, it was kind of emotional for me because it took me back, you know, it's, uh, you know, we're tracking down almost 53 years of, of life on, you know, family and personal experience and moments of fear and moments of incredible, uh, excitement and uh, amazement. And so it's, uh, it's been an emotional ride. And so I, I hope uh, in some way that my, my voice uh, can, and my story can in inspire other people. Well, you have for sure. What an amazing journey you're on. I want to give you kudos for seizing opportunity. What an amazing example of you know, the unlikely entrepreneur and just succeeding on your terms. So proud of you. And I'm no surprise to kind of know how fulfilled you are. Uh, so Mike, thank you for being part of the solution. And I'm going to see you very soon on the court. You yeah, take thank, care. thank you, Molly. I really appreciate the opportunity. You're the best cheering for you all the way. Okay, folks, my thought for the week from Mike, the greatest meeting room in the world is around the dinner table. And that is a wrap. Thank you for tuning in please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Mike's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.